It's a blessing for us to be able to have Yami Bazan with us today. And we made a deal last fall. She had asked me to come talk to some people where she's at, and I said, I'll come if you come talk to my people. So uh, she came here. It's January, and the date has come. But uh, she's also come home, in a sense, as she uh, used to teach at Mesa Grande Academy. And, um, but Yami, one of the things I appreciate most about you is just your genuine passion for Jesus and his kingdom. And you share it in a very authentic way, in a way that is real in this world. So thank you for your journey that you share with us. And uh, let's just welcome her here this morning. Thank you, family. It is coming home for me. Um, at first, at the first um, service, there were so many faces from Mesa Grande that I was just like, ah, hello. I know, I get sidetracked. Okay, but I'm going to focus. Um, I told Pastor John I, when he said, you know, okay, now it's your time to swap. It's not really a fair swap. I said, you know, you're a pastor. I'm asking you to come in. And um, he said, don't worry, it's your crew. They're going to forgive you. So I'm claiming that this morning. You will be forgiving in case, not in case, whenever I totally mess it up or if I say things um, out of context. Um, but this is such a great privilege and honor, and thank you. It truly is coming home for me. Uh, so my son was around six years old, and uh, my sister, who is here with me this morning, she's joining me. Uh, the boys are out on a nature trip. I'm getting this. I'm getting, I'm trying to understand it. Um, they're out on a nature trip. Um, so my sister came uh, to spend it with me. But uh, my son was around six years old, and uh, my niece and my son are two days apart. So we, they call themselves twins since the day they were born. You know, they're the twins. And um, when my sister is around, she is crafty and enjoys decorating. And so we were going to go see model homes, because, of course, who has all the money for crafting and decorating? But a model home. And so we, were, we went to go see a model home, and the twins, as they call themselves, quickly ran upstairs and kind of got lost while we lingered behind, you know, looking at the kitchen and cabinets and, you know, uh, well, she was looking at all that stuff. <laughs> and all of a sudden, there's a commotion upstairs. And so we walk up the stairs, look all around, and find the kids in the closet, in the master uh, bedroom closet. And this is what was going on. This is my closet. No, it's my closet. I got here first. You need to go. No, it's my closet. I got here first. You need to leave. And on and on. It's this whole battle over the master bedroom closet which of course perplexed us both. And so we interrupt this you know, little uh, conversation to mention a point to them. First of all, this is not your home. We are visiting a model home. Secondly, you're inside of a closet, fighting for a closet. You realize that there is an entire house, as well as like a six bedroom home. You need to go and explore the house, not fight over the closet. No, this is my closet. I want to play in here. No, we finally dismantled them and sent them off to go and discover. Well, that evening, as I, you know, lay in bed kind of thinking through the day and thinking about the incident. God has a way of always using life moments to kind of awaken me. And so that evening as I laid there, this reality came to mind that Ashley and Danny were not very different than I and many of us. And that we tend to spend a lot of time arguing over closets 
over things that are really small details, over the fact that, you know, things that maybe we, we think is our playground, but to him it's like, I have given you the entire model earth home. Find a different room. And that kind of got me into thinking about things in my life that I uh, had been, you know, just maybe putting way too much attention to that really didn't require that much value. Well, as Pastor John, uh, when he invited me and I began to think about our time together, I, I began to think about sort of my life moments where God interrupted me and probably my most memorable interruptions in my life. And so uh, probably if I were to begin from youngest to oldest, my most memorable youngest interruption was when we were, when I was seven um, and my parents gathered us children, there was three of us, my brother, my sister, and myself, and, and they told us in secret, and you know, very much quiet, because you couldn't say it outwardly, that we would be leaving the country within a week, and that we were allowed to take one pair of clothing, so we get to decide. We were leaving Cuba, and we were heading out to uh, Spain at that time. And so, of course, it has to be in secret, because within the communist regime, you can't say that, you can't tell your neighbors you're leaving because then you're in for a nice goodbye party. Um, and so um, I remember all of us just started to cry and cry. No, we can't go. This is our home. We can't take us. I mean, we each have one toy. It's like the best thing ever. Because of course, in communist country, you're allowed one toy a year. And we thought that was the best thing ever until we landed in the US and realized there's a store with toys. What in the world happened to us? And uh, but you know, we cried, no, 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 we don't want to go. It really wasn't until I was in college writing a reflection paper that I realized that that interruption that my parents gave us was actually the greatest gift for us as children to be able to come and be educated. The second life interruption that happened to me um, was, well, I was in college and I knew I was one of those really freaky kids. I'm just going to admit, please forgive me. But I was, you know, I loved learning. I loved school. I loved everything. So college for me was all about like, oh my goodness, I had my major. I knew exactly what I wanted to be. I knew how I was going to get there. I was the annoying person who was telling my advisor, you don't even have to look it over. I've got it. I've looked it over. Sign it off. I'm heading out. And of course, those kinds of people tend to be teachers because if you love learning, what else are you going to do? You're gonna go and live in a classroom, the best place in the whole wide world. Um, and so I was all set, but I was gonna be a special kind of teacher because I knew exactly what I wanted to do. I wanted to teach in a public school with children who had no access to education. I wanted to teach bilingual children. I wanted to work with minorities. So I did all of my research. I had done all of my studies, did my set up my own student teaching because at that time, La Sierra didn't really work with that kind of community. So I set up my whole, and all of a sudden, I get a call from the conference office. And the conference office said, we would like for you to go on a mock interview to Mesa Grande. I said, Mesa Grande? Is that like in Arizona? Where is that? Mesa Grande, New Mexico? They're like, no, that's here in California. It's over by Loma Linda. This is pre-Google, where is Mesa Grande? Um, and so I came to Mesa Grande, and of course, God interrupts my entire life decision. I they offer me the job and I say to God, no, because did you not just notice that I have spent four years really preparing myself for a different mission? Um, but God said, no, I noticed, but you're still gonna go there. Um, and it was at Mesa Grande that God 
prepared me for my next interruption. I loved, I loved uh, my teaching time there, but I would have never actually set it up for myself. My last interruption is the one that I really want to spend my time talking with you this morning. And it was how God interrupted, through my time at Mesa Grande, my faith journey. So at Mesa Grande, of course, in sixth grade, you're teaching life and teachings of Jesus. And so I would have to spend hours and hours talking about the life and teachings of Jesus. And in that process, fell deeply in love with God and with the story of Jesus. And with Jesus' encounters, it all of a sudden began to help me understand my encounter with Jesus. And this morning, I want to spend a little bit of time kind of exploring with you what happened with my faith in that process. I invite you, if you have your Bibles, to open to the book of John, chapter 9, verse 25. And there's an encounter here between a blind man and Jesus. And that's not what I'm focusing on, because actually I'm going to focus on what happens uh, to that blind man once he leaves Jesus' sight and now he can see. And verse 25 reads... Whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. It doesn't seem right to me, or it didn't seem right to me. How can the gospel possibly be this easy? I would ask myself. Do you want to see, Jesus asked, and they said, yes. I had followed my rabbi since before I was born, fourth generation Adventist, a pastor's daughter, born with a longing for my creator. So imagine my surprise every single time that I would sit in church and I would hear testimony of someone who had just experienced a true conversion. Someone whom he had touched and now they could see. How? And why them and not me would always be my question. I deserve it, I would think. I have been yours, I have followed your rules, I have stayed by your side, I have obeyed your commandments, but now you let him see? I want to see. The power of the transformation always pointed to God, but I didn't understand why couldn't it have been me. And so I go and I visit the rabbi late at night and I tell him, Rabbi, I, I don't understand. You must be born again, Yami, he tells me. How can I be born again? And he looked in my eyes with love and gentleness. Here was this very conceited daughter with an air of entitlement, the most annoying of quality, in my opinion. But he looks at me and he says, sell all you have and follow me. And I shared with you that last time that was here. And so we do. After a year in prayer and at the end of that year, my husband and I sell all we have and we begin to follow the rabbi. And it is because of that faith journey that I now can say, I was blind, but now I see. As I explore this thought a little bit deeper, would you pray with me? Father God, I just want to give you permission to edit my words to um, translate my words and to give us somehow, by the time that we leave here, give us the opportunity to be interrupted and to for a minute 
listen to what you say. We pray in your name. Amen. God's interruption in my life began with a simple realization. The gospel is not a story to be told. It is rather a relationship that has to be experienced. I asked Pastor John, but I don't know. Oh, there he is. I asked Pastor John this morning. He didn't remember. No, just kidding. Pastor John, do you remember the first time you saw Lisa? Do you remember the first time? Do you remember when you asked her to marry you? All the emotions and the feelings that went with it. I remember when Danny asked me to marry him. I don't remember uh, all the details, but I do remember that post him asking, I spent a year writing my name on pieces of paper, Yamilet Bazan. I thought that was the most exciting thing ever. I don't understand it. It's okay. He didn't either. But I remember all of the emotions and all of the things that come into place. And so, of course, now, when my son is around, we always tell him our story. We're always telling him, you know, how we met, or when people ask, you know, how did your parents meet? And, of course, now he's 15, and all he does is like, ugh, gross, I'm leaving the room, you know, because he hates it. But imagine if Danny would come up to me, my son, and he would say, okay, I'd like to have a girlfriend. I'd say, well, no, absolutely not. Dad and I have the perfect love relationship. This is good enough. You can just live your life watching us, and you should be happy with that. You've got great love story. No, right? doesn't work. Absolutely not. He has to have his own. For 4,000 years, humanity attempted to tell the coming story of Jesus and to transfer via words and religious traditions the character of what the Father was like. But it took Jesus being among us and living with us to transform that faith experience for us to be able to understand it. My home is now experiencing the angst of two teenage boys, my son Daniel, who's 15, and our adopted international son, Howen, who's 18. And what do teenage boys want more than anything? Do you remember? Yeah, besides food. Thank you for clarifying that. Um, they want to drive. They want, you know, be able to have their independence. And so, of course, everything is about cars. My husband has been taking them over to dealership because our, our older one wants to buy a car, and they've been test driving cars, and there's posters about cars and magazines of cars in the restroom, and, you know, they have all this whole talk that I don't understand about engine size and who cares. And um, it's all about the car. Now, imagine, imagine if I were to say, or we were to say to them, okay, your responsibility is to, re you know, if you want to buy that car, you need to read the manual. And once they've read the manual, then we'd say, okay, go ahead, you can purchase the car. And then they purchase the car, and then we could say, okay, you need to take care of the car. So wash it, clean it, you know, turn it on once in a while, da -da -da -da. make sure you've got the manual memorized. But we never allow them to drive. What would happen? They would become frustrated and angry, and what's the purpose of this, right? Because... That's not what it's meant to be. And yet we do that with our faith, oftentimes. We attempt to somehow pass something on or making sure that the manual is read over and over again and expect that something transformational is going to occur. But faith is something that has to be lived. In the book of John, right after the story of the young blind man, you find in chapter 10, verse 10, these words, the thief comes only to steal and to kill and destroy, but I come for what? that they may have life 
and that they may have it abundantly. Abundantly. The gospel is the manual on how to live life because life is meant to be lived. But faith is driving. Faith is that experience that allows you to fully understand the power that's behind your foot, the driving. I never imagined or understood the beauty of the gospel. I will be the first to admit it. My rabbi came so that I could have life and I could have it abundantly. But I was sure that the gospel is supposed to be a sacrifice. I was sure that it's this cross that you bear and that you just sort of tolerate it because it's good for you. Kind of like vegetables, right? I just knew, I I became to realize that I had stayed home with the Father, not because I knew him or understood the life that he was wanting for me, but I had actually stayed home because I knew home. I knew my faith, I knew my traditions, and they were comfortable. My home, my faith, everything was safe. And if you know home, then you don't have to really try to do anything else, I used to think. And so please hear me and don't be upset. And if you are, you have to forgive me. I believe we have churches filled with members who have great intentions but terrible theology. They practice and they teach a very limited gospel. It is a gospel that is oppressive and proud and earned and fake and empty, missing a savior and absolutely devoid of the experience to drive We were meant to live life and live it abundantly. And just because we don't know the definition of abundantly doesn't mean that it's a life that has been prepared for us. Last time I was with you, I shared with you my faith journey, which began the year that I stopped fighting in the closet, and rather I began to follow my Savior, just me and Him. And that year on the road following him and experiencing his power over tornadoes that accompanied us in Arkansas or sandstorms in Arizona or snowstorms in New Jersey, empty cupboards in Walla Walla, Washington, experiencing his ability to heal the sexually abused young teens which we encountered in every location that we would go to, the angry young dissolution kid in Tennessee whom he gave purpose to, All of these things, as I began to follow the rabbi that year, walking close to him and seeing him bring life to them, all of a sudden I realized that who he was meaning to give life was to me. Danny and I have never and have never since witnessed life in a more complete and fulfilling way. To live abandonedly with Jesus is like being blind and all of a sudden being able to see. It's bright and it's beautiful and it's too much to take in at once, but you don't want to blink because if you do, you're afraid you're going to miss it. Our homes and our families and our churches need to be places where we don't just give away a Jesus manual, but we create experiences whereby they too can learn how to drive. It isn't just about the spoken word, it's about the lived word. An abundant life spills over and transforms everyday experiences. An abundant life gives words meaning and power. It gives people empathy and courage and vision. Faith is meant to be lived. Do you know when I returned home, there were those that struggled. They struggled with the fact that I was a woman. Imagine that. 
and that my mission trip was a bit fanatical. It was kind of not like your ordinary ministerial track. They questioned the authenticity of the experience, the miracle of the transformation. I remember vividly one Sabbath morning, I was invited to go speak in a Spanish church in the local area. And they failed to mention to the pastor that I was a female. And my name can be misleading, I'll be the first to admit. And so when he realized that here I was speaking in his church and I was a woman, he was very offended. And so he said, you can speak, but you need to make sure that you sit in the pew. You don't get to go to the most holy place. That's only for people that have the authority to be in the most holy place. But you need to come and, and I will bring down the pulpit and you can speak from down here. Not knowing that this is my favorite place. Anyway, it's what I choose. So I was like, hey, bring it on. Thank you, Jesus. No, actually, I wasn't. Um, I, it was early on, and so I, I actually was really confused. I actually, I sat and I wondered, and I sat there, God, am I doing something wrong? I, I don't want to offend you. I don't want to create chaos in your church. I don't want to hurt anybody. See, what I didn't know, what I now know, is that when a church is devoid, devoid the members the opportunity to be able to share their experiences, what we happens is we make them question the reality of the experience. Every one of us sitting here this morning is an active participant in the hands of God in the work that we each one, each one of us does every single day. And we experience God differently because God is able to use us in different ways depending on where we are at. And if we don't create as a church spaces where we can share those experiences, then all of a sudden we begin to question if those experiences are even real or not. At least at that moment, that's what I was feeling. And sitting there with God, he reminded me, listen, this isn't about your story. This is about my story. So you get up and you share my story. So when it was time for me to preach and share it, I got up, and uh, the pastor brought the pulpit down, kind of, and he set it, you know, in the center. And I paused for a minute before we judge that action, because I actually feel like, even though that's an overt way of saying you don't belong there, oftentimes without us meaningly and inadvertently, we say with our words and with our actions to others that you don't belong here. But he did that. He brings it down. I begin. I open my mouth and I remember saying the words that I said to you this morning. One thing I know is that I was blind and now I see. And I began to share my journey. Do you know that I left church that day at 10.30 p.m. at night? I spoke at noon. They asked me to come back at 3. They asked me to come back again at 6. I then had, they had socials. They asked me to stay for socials. And it was at 10.30 when everything was done that I was able finally to get in my car and to drive. And when I did, I sat in my car. I began to drive home. And I just started to cry. I cried because he reminded me that day that there are no boundaries too big for him. There are no children too lost, there's no anger too big, there are no prejudices too ingrained. When the gospel is preached, not just with words, but with our life, his love has the power to transcend it. Yes. 
When I was a child, I had this misconception. I believed that the power of God, I believed Jesus was up in heaven, and that once in a while, he would sprinkle power to certain groups of people, and if you were lucky enough, sometimes you got sprinkled an extra amount of power, and then you would get up and you would speak, and wow, check out her power, she got sprinkled, kind of like a Disney movie, right? But I did. I believe that's what it was. I believe that's what had happened. And now I've come to understand that the power of Jesus lives among us here in our communities, in our churches, in our members, in our families, in the young and in the old. We just need to look with new eyes. It isn't about protecting Jesus by making our churches exclusive or protecting the gospel by limiting the ability for others to speak or protecting our, go- our pulpits. We don't need to protect him but it is rather to allow him to live inside of us in such a way and to connect with us so abundantly that everyone around is able to see this is the kind of life that I lead. We need to let him be God. Here's what I've come to realize. Jesus is enough. See, the people of Israel would teach and would tell each other stories of the past when God had been with them. It was what had defined them and their experience. And kind of like us today, the Israelites knew their stories and their theology brilliantly. And it was a beautiful story. Emmanuel, God with you. But somehow, in the midst of that, even though every single Sabbath they would go to church and they would sit and they would hear the prophecies and they would wait anxiously for the king, they misinterpreted what type of king he would be. Their limited thinking never grasped the reality that his kingdom could be bigger than this tiny planet. His closet needed to be expanded. That he would come and he would be the divine king of all. But because they didn't understand that, then they attempted to protect that which they knew. I have come to ask myself, is it possible that we too, that my home, the Adventist, that we too have misinterpreted the prophecies and are so anxiously awaiting only an eternal experience when in reality Jesus longs to live with us here and now? I'm often confronted by teens or young adults who um, will tell me things like, well, you know, yeah, I mean, you know, you guys are old, but when, when I get old, I will, I, I will totally be like you. Right now, I just need to live life. As if somehow there is this choice, like living with God, well, it's so boring, I'm just going to choose that later. And I often have to remind him this isn't a choice. When you live abundantly with God now, you say yes to the best things in life. But, but I feel like sometimes we've misinterpreted that. They have misinterpreted the gospel kind of like we have at times, like it's the sacrifice. They remind me of me and my own Adventist community at times. I wonder if we continue to be so obsessed with the future like the Israelites, will we lose the God of the present? You see, the good news of the gospel is not something that is limited only to experiencing in heaven, but it's experienced here daily when we decide to give God what little we have in our hands. 
I have watched Jesus transform ordinary moments into extraordinary experiences because he can, because he is the divine. I will tell you, my life was interrupted, but it was because of that interruption that I, God was able to take an ordinary woman with nothing in her hands but a desire to see and allow me to have an extraordinary experience. I now live every day saturated by his presence with a lens into the divine. He transforms every simple and tired and confused and ordinary moment into his sacred opportunity. I now live forgiven, I live with purpose, I live free, I live abundantly. All I can say, friends, is I was blind, but gladly now I see. God, we, your children, have come in hopes of hearing your voice and of seeing your face. I think more importantly, we've come in hope of knowing where it is that you are leading us. And so take our lives, Father God. Interrupt us in the places that you need to interrupt us. We give you permission. Shift us from our closets that feel so safe and give us eyes to see all that you have provided for us to do. Father God, we ask this for a very simple reason, for we long to see you. So help us to live our lives abundantly in your presence so that others, too, can see you in us. We pray in your name. Amen.